right, here we go. My name is Todd Adams. And this is Kathy Adams. Welcome back to Zen Parenting Radio. Um, we have a conversations with people we love. Uh, we have an author named Bridget Schulte. She is the author of Overwhelmed, How to Work, Love, and Play When No One Else Has the Time. It's a New York Times bestseller, sweetie. I know. How about that? I know. Um, so who is Bridget? Bridget's an award-winning journalist for the Washington Post and the Washington Post Magazine. She's part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize. That's crazy. I know. It's amazing. I just found that out uh, when I opened up the cover of your book. She is also a fellow at the New American America Foundation. She lives in Alexandria, Virginia with her husband and two children. So, Bridget, welcome to Zen Parenting Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Oh, well, thank you. We're big fans of you. So, um, Kathy and I want to kind of dive right in, but first we need to kind of give the listeners kind of a heads up of what your book is all about. So I think you'd probably be able to do it a little bit better than I could. So, um, just give us kind of a heads up. What, what drove you to write this book and what's it all about? Well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief, (laughs) but the book is really an accidental book. Um, you know, I'm a reporter at the Washington post. This is, and a couple years ago, um, uh, I was part of a team that was looking at, um, readership numbers and, and how busy women were and why women were having a tough time reading the newspaper. And, uh, in doing the research, I came across a time use researcher who tried to convince me that women were actually not busy and that they had 30 hours of leisure a week. And I just about fell out of my chair. I said, (laughs) I don't know what the, I don't know what what you're talking about. I don't have 30 hours of leisure, you know? And he said, yes, you do come do a time study. I'll show you where your leisure is. And, you know, at that time I felt like my hair was on fire. I was just trying to work. I was had two kids and I was, was kind of doing it all at home and trying to kind of be this crazy helicopter mom and kind of a crazy worker at work. And I just felt like I was inadequate at everything. And I, I never sat down and I always had a to-do list going. So, um, uh, I did do the time study and he found 27 hours of what he called leisure. And I called bits and scraps of garbagey time. <laughs> and I ended up calling it time confetti because that's really what my days felt like, just kind of scraps and fragments that really didn't add up to much. Um, you know, and I just sort of felt uh, that I was living my life kind of on the sidelines almost. And my kids were growing up in front of my eyes and I felt like I could just never, uh, it's like I was living my life and watching it go by. With, rather than really feeling like I was inside of it. And um, so I wrote a magazine story for the Washington Post magazine on this, you know, this uh, journey, this time diary. And uh, it got so many crazy hits uh, that people started contacting me and asking, do you want to write a book? And I thought initially, not really. <laughs> you know, I just figured, you know, we're busy. Uh, these, these are the choices I made. I was a working mom and this is just the way it had to be. And I really, it took about a year to really think through what would I really want to know if I were going to explore this as a book. And I was having coffee with a friend who had written a book and he said that he was motivated by two questions. And, uh, and I completely stole it from him. I, I credit him in the book, but I said, Larry, I love that. It's why are things the way they are and how can they be better? Mm. Because what surprised me when I wrote the magazine article for the Washington Post is I got so many emails from people young and old and men and women, people with kids, without kids, kind of across the board. So it wasn't just sort of a working mommy kind of thing. And they all said, you climbed into my head and you wrote about my life. And honestly, that's when I really thought, okay, I I want to look into this deeply. I want to use my skills as a reporter and researcher and really dig into this and try to understand 
why are we all feeling so overwhelmed? Why are we all feeling so breathless? Um, where is that coming from? When did it start? Uh, and more than anything, what can you do about it? You know, is this really just the way that it has to be? Like I, I had always assumed. And that's really what led me to, to write the book. Um, and I was really inspired by the Harvard psych, uh, psychologist, Eric Erickson, who wrote uh, that the richest and fullest lives make time for the three great arenas of life, work, love, and play. Mm. And so I decided to ask those two questions. Why are things the way they are and how can they be better in each of those great arenas? And that's really the the structure of the book. Well, I so agree with all the people who emailed you and said you climbed into my head because I want to take a picture of my book of yours, or meaning, you know, yeah. my copy, because I feel like I've folded every page where I would have to fold the <laughs> other page too. Like I've like double rabbit ears. I mean, it, Todd can attest to the fact that, it, that it's kind of hard for anyone else to read now because I've written all over it. So I so agree. Um, and I love the way that you broke it out with work, love and play. It's just, it's it was easy. The research even was um, easy to take in because I knew what was going to come next was going to give me the information I needed to do whatever transformation that, you know, I could do that was that was possible. But my first question for you, Bridget, is this is at the very beginning of the book. You talk about how busyness has become kind of like a way to demonstrate our importance, that it's become kind of fashionable. Mm -hmm. And how did this happen? And why do we do this to each other? Why do we try and out busy each other? You know, that was probably one of the biggest aha moments. I had so many in in writing this book. And in so many ways, uh, I, I consider writing this book a real gift, yeah. <laughs> you know, that I, I got to try to understand life uh, in a way. And that was a real surprise to me. I really wanted to think that through um, because I always felt busy. I, and, and the reason I studied, I wanted to look into busyness is uh, when I was, it really came from looking into leisure time, into play, and what is leisure? And I always thought that leisure was sort of silly and stupid, and I was far too important to have leisure. And I was always, uh, you know, busy and running around. And if I wasn't working, I just had a million things to do. And uh, and I was talking to a leisure researcher, and and he was saying, you know, he's trying to ex explain what leisure is, and asking me if I ever had any. And I kind of proudly said, No, I don't have yeah. any leisure. I'm just, I'm just too busy. And it was really funny. I and I didn't even think that I was bragging, but in retrospect, I realized that I was. And he stopped, and he kind of stopped me, and he said, Oh, one of the seven deadly sins. <laughs> and I'm like, What? I'm, I'm busy. That's a good thing. I mean, I used to call it virtuous busyness. You know, I thought that it was at the end of the day, I could not tell you what I did. But man, I filled every single minute of it. And the reason why he said it was a sin is because in a way, it keeps you so busy that you avoid thinking about the real big questions in life, which is what's most important to you. You know, if you're running around filling your day with stuff, you never really have or take the time to think about is all that stuff really the thing that's most important to you and at the end of your life that you're going to remember? Uh, you know, because in a way we get so busy, we, we forget that our lives are short <laughs> and that yes. they will end at some point. So I began, uh, it was really through um, being told that I was sinning <laughs> that I, uh, I decided to look into busyness. And I, I initially started, find, I found one guy who studies busyness and frenetic families in L.A. and I was going to go spend time with him. And that made sense to me, you know, people in big cities or L.A. or I live in Washington, D.C. and everybody's crazy in type A. 
Uh, but then he called me up and said he was too busy to have me come and spend time with him. <laughs> and that really sent me into a, you know, that, that sent me into a panic. I thought my deadline was approaching and all of a sudden I had an entire chapter that was just a question mark. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I was in a panic and I called a friend of mine who uh, uh, works uh, for the Work Family Researchers Network, which is this wonderful network of all these people who do amazing research into work life, work family issues. And she said, well, go to our archives and just do a search on busyness. <laughs> and so I did. And I found a woman in North Dakota, of all places, Fargo, North Dakota, who is sort of like the premier expert in busyness and the fast pace of life. And she became, she's a, she studies language. She's a communications professor there at North Dakota State University. And she came up to this conclusion that we use busyness as a way of showing status because she got her Christmas letters one year, her holiday letters. And she started circling all these words like, wow, all these people, they are so stressed out. They are so busy. And so she started circling over and over again these words, um, you know, busy, ever faster, the planet spin, we're, we're so breathless, you know, frenetic. And uh, over the years, she's collected this archive of decades of holiday letters. And we went through them one afternoon. And you can really see this progressive, yeah. um, you know, kind of busyness. And granted, there is a lot more, you know, our lives are faster paced. Technology has certainly made that faster, uh, kind of always on. It's harder to turn off. You know, so there are certainly external forces uh, going on, but but there is a really interesting um, kind of cultural phenomenon as, as well that busyness has become a real fashionable status symbol. It's so, so much so that she says that we will often create it when it does not exist because True. nobody wants to say when somebody says, how are you? You don't want to say, you know, uh, I'm not doing much or, you know, we tend to think what a loser, right? Mm -hmm. yes. You know, that if... You know, think about how we talk to each other. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fried. How are you? Yeah, we're so busy. I mean, that's just even how we talk to each other. Um, you know, it's like that's how you fit in. Yeah. You know, maybe not even showing status in some cases, but just showing that you're part of the group. Um, so, Bridget, one of my favorite stories in the book, and, and I'll summarize it because then afterwards I have a question, is that when you're making your Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm sure you talk about this a lot when you're promoting <laughs> it's it. It's the story, right? And um, so you're making your Thanksgiving dinner, you're doing 85 different things all at once. Um, your husband comes in, you think that it's he's there to help, and instead he goes into the fridge, gets a six-pack of beer, and goes to a neighbor to do something else. And at that point, you kind of hit your boiling point. Now, my first thing is, I have been, I'm a great husband. I'm a great fa father. But having said that, I have been that husband. Yes. I have done these, what in retrospect seem to be really stupid decisions. Um, but I think a lot, of, a lot of it is because um, I think wives like to be martyrs and they really enjoy playing that role. That's the That's wrong word. Right. Enjoy is the wrong word. But We're used they're to playing that with role. It, yes. And they don't say anything until it boils over. So we, uh, we have a lot of friends and people that we work with and they will, um, the husband will think everything is fine because the wife doesn't speak her mind. She doesn't, like what we talk about on the podcast a lot are mini meltdowns. Like when things are bothering you, mm -hmm. you need to say it out loud. And then what happens a lot in certain relationships is that the wife will just kind of grin and bear it, grin and bear it, grin and bear it until finally it boils over, explodes. And then the husband's like, oh, my wife is 
you know, yelling at me or whatever. So my question is, do you think that, that there is a comfort level for moms because they feel like they have to be a certain, play a certain role because that's what they remember their mothers? The ideal mother role, as right. you refer to in the book. Right, right. Well, I wouldn't call it a comfort level. No. You know, I think that it, there's a there's great discomfort and dis uh, you know dissatisfaction there. There's I've referred to it as sort of this like kind of low level radioactive waste kind of burbling around at the bottom of your stomach. You know, um, honestly, these issues when you look at divorce rates, you know, it, I don't want to minimize this at all. This is huge. Mm-hmm. These kind of fights over what does not feel fair. You know, it doesn't have to be 50-50, but if it doesn't feel fair, that can really lead to marital discord and even dissolution. And one of the big issues, you hit it right on the head, is that we don't talk about it. We don't know how to talk about it. And, you know, we think that we do, but we get, um, I mean, this is the thing that that was a real eye-opener to me, is to, uh, to see how even though my husband and I had promised to be equal partners when we started out and we were pretty good about it, you know, I was almost militant about it. I didn't get married till I was, you know, 30. And I, you know, was, uh, you know, it's not like I was some, you know, um, you know, I had had sort of a, a life on my own and I was really, you know, determined that I have a partner and, you know, like I, I love my parents, but I didn't want their relationship and it was just, it was astonishing to me at that, at that Thanksgiving moment, just how far we'd gotten off course. And then, in, you know, again, the gift was that I was researching this book and during that Thanksgiving story, and I was right in the middle of learning about all of the, what they call the stalled gender revolution, and seeing how in time studies all across the world, not just in the United States, but it is that very moment when the first child comes home that things start to change. Yeah. And they start to change for a couple of reasons that one, we usually give mothers maternity leave. I mean, we are the only advanced economy in the world that does not have paid maternity leave or paid paternity leave. So, so it's, it's pretty crummy to begin with, but we, but if anybody's going to get any leave, it's typically moms. Uh, they're the ones who typically take it, whether it's paid or unpaid. I took a combination of paid and a lot of unpaid, um, so it's moms that take that time. And then you're home, you're with the baby, you kind of, your family dynamics get set. Men typically don't have or don't feel like they can take paternity leave or parental leave. And so kind of from the very start, you get set that mom's the primary parent, mom's the default parent, and mom's home anyway. Well, I might as well go ahead and start doing this stuff around the house. And very slowly, even if you have the best intentions for equal partnerships, things start to shift. And even when moms go back to work, it doesn't shift. It doesn't shift back. Um, and then we also have this kind of mythology, which I, I completely bought into, that, that, that there's this maternal instinct so that moms should do it. And I felt very much, I felt very strongly, I was a very guilty working mom. I felt like I should do it. Part of me really wanted to do it, you know, meaning do it, meaning, you know, be the one to take uh the kids to childcare, to pick them up, to take them to the pediatrician, to stay home when they were sick, to flex my schedule, to, you know, I sort of put myself in that primary parent role. And what I didn't realize in doing that, because I wanted to, because I felt like I had to, and I was a little bit resentful that Tom wasn't kind of, you know, more forceful about it. But I didn't realize that in my actions, I was sort of keeping him out. Mm -hmm. You know, they call that maternal gatekeeping. So he didn't really have an in to, to be anything other than the fun parent or the, you know, the, the parent who would, 
you know, oh, let me kind of quote unquote help out every now and again. And so, so I think that what you're, ta- what you're talking about is very common um, and, and couples sort of don't know then how to get out of that uh, sort of family dynamic. And when, when Tom and I would try to talk about it, it would usually end up in sort of a, uh, I don't want to say a fight, but certainly a, a spat where I would feel angry and he would feel defensive and it would usually blow up, like you say, over something stupid. Mm. And then you're like, why are we even fighting over this stupid thing? And it was really that that massive meltdown at, the, at Thanksgiving. Um, and, you know, it's funny, it wasn't a fight. It wasn't blow up or anything. I just got profoundly sad mm. um, and just really... Um, uh, you know, kind of soul crushingly sad, like, how did this happen? And uh, I was very lucky because at the time I was interviewing Jessica DeGroote, who runs the third, the third path Institute. And it's really the only place that I found that, that it's like a, it's an organization that tries to help couples, uh, figure out how to share the load between work and life and even make time for play. And so I had been interviewing her and started working with her actually. And that helped me kind of deal with my rage, help me see things a little bit more clearly. And then Tom and I started doing what I would suggest every couple does. And, and every couple does not only at the beginning of their relationship, but routinely, which is we started to talk and, and talked, we would go on long walks and it, you know, we kind of like to kind of, we're in the neutral zone then, you know, with the kind of the white flags up, we weren't fighting. We were really just trying to figure out how did this happen? How did we get here? Are we happy? You know, is this where we want to be? And if we're not, how do we get out of it? And how do we do it together? And we really started small. We started with like little bitty experiments, which like, all right, well, how do we start fair, sharing fairly? And the first thing we recognized is that we needed common standards because he always accused me of having my standards too high. You know, he'd say, oh, you're like Marge Simpson. If the house is on fire, you'd come in and you'd do the dishes, you know? <laughs> and, and, he's, and he's probably right about that. I mean, I'm a little bit of a crazy clean freak. I do. I, I'm one of the few that wipes out the sink and the airplanes, you know? I'm nuts <laughs> that way. So, um, you know, and he's, you know, he's certainly not a slob, but he's not as kind of nuts as I am, you know, like he would probably never care if the oven hood never got cleaned and, you know, it was clogged with grease and the, you know, smoke alarms went off all the time. So we had, he had to come up a little bit and I had to go down a little bit in our standards and meet in the middle. Um, and we talked about it and we, you know, we decided to kind of take gender out of the assumptions of who should do what. And really figure, well, what are our personalities and who likes doing what or who could do, you know, who could do things better. And he's much more extroverted and he likes going out. So he does the grocery shopping now. And I'm kind of more introverted and I'm more of a homebody. So I'll do the laundry. And uh, I like working in the yard. So I'll do the yard work, you know. And uh, there's other things that he likes. We've started to share um, not only taking kids to the dentist and the doctor, but share the planning and making the appointments because that's a lot of the invisible work, the kind of mentally exhausting work that women often do, again, because those family dynamics get set and we think that moms are just better at it. And, you know, I think that's what's so interesting is that science is showing us dads are just as wired for nurture. There's just as much physiological and biological change when a man becomes a father 
um, you know, that the brain lights up in, in similar pathways that, that encourages nurture and communication. And that what men have always needed is what women always had, which is time. And if you give men time early on to develop their confidence and competence in their own way of doing things, and then, you know, mom, don't come in and snip and snap and criticize and my way's better, you know, bite your tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody finds their own way of doing it and, uh, you know, make the whole family dynamic different right from the start, which is why I find it so fascinating when you look at countries like Iceland or some of the Nordic countries or even Quebec has recently, they've got these daddy day quotas for parental leave. And when you give men that early time, it completely changes the family dynamic for many families. And three years later, they're finding there's much more equal sharing of home and work for for families and much more closeness to both parents. Uh, And there is sort of no primary or default. There's really a family, which I think is really cool. And and all of this is so important because it opens our minds to the idea that all of this is possible because I work with a lot of women and men. Todd works with men. I work with women. And what we hear all the time is a lot of things that you say in your book that this is just how it is or it's just easier if I do it this way. And one of the biggest things is exactly what you're writing about is that people feel so busy that they won't mm-hmm. even take the time to have these talks that you're talking about, that they will actually say too much is going on. We'll have that discussion later. And it's not – it's kind of like a sex talk. It's not one talk. It's yeah. continuous <laughs> talk. Like one of my examples with, with Todd is that he and I have we, – we do these things, have these discussions. I have many meltdowns. He has many meltdowns. And when I first started asking, you know, we need to be – we need to partner on these things, he would just say, okay, well, then I'll take the kids to school. And I would say, but that's something I actually like. So mm-hmm. it initially – I thought it was helping. Yeah, Todd thinks, you know, he's thinking, okay, I'm jumping in. And then when I say, well, I want to do that, he's like, you just told me you need some time. But we have to partner about what that means for each of us. And that's why, you know, just expanding that conversation that it, it's not, as you said, it's not one talk or one breakdown. It is continuous conversation. And have you felt that obviously, because you're still talking about it, you've been able to maintain that conversation in your home as well? You know, absolutely. And often people have asked me what's been sort of the biggest change since writing the book. And there's been a lot of changes. And I mean, I don't want to come off and say that everything's, you know, roses. I mean, there are still stupid days. There's still overwhelming times. There just, there, there just are. That's right. Um, but I, um, I catch myself sooner. I see things more clearly. And I think the most important thing is that um, Tom and I really have, have, um, really redefined how how we are as a family, and it's uh, you know it's freed up mental space in my head. It's it's cleared up that low level radioactive waste of resentment that was always kind of burbling. It's freed up more time, not only for me but for us, you know, to kind of reconnect again. Yeah, I I don't feel um, I, you know I guess the biggest gift really is that I, my mind doesn't feel so cluttered. I mean, I just remember feeling breathless all the time, just trying to remember all the stuff I had to do. And so when you really share that load, I, I mean, Jessica DeGroote, I love this it's when she was trying to explain kind of this her whole concept to me. She's like, because she and her husband were were kind of pioneers in trying to share uh, more fairly work and life. And she said that they traded off who made dinner. And so one night when it was her husband's turn to make dinner, he he turned to her and he said, "What do you want for dinner?" And she looked up and she said. 
to not have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's brilliant because that's yes. really the, the gift of sharing is that it frees your brain. And, and then, um, and then you really are partners and you, and, but, but exactly what you're saying is that you have to keep those conversations going because life changes and you have to adapt as you go. The kids get older, the activities change, jobs may change, you may move, you know, maybe, uh, you know, for instance, Tom just got back today from a trip to Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a reporter for NPR. He had an amazing trip. I was very scared that he was there, but yeah. he loved it. And so, you know what, for that month, I'm going to, you know, I guess the term is sponsor him. I'm going to do everything mm-hmm. because I think that's a great experience for him. It's important to him, you know, and, and so now he's going to come back and it's going to be a period of adjustment. It's like, okay, I was doing everything. Now you're going to come back. And we're going to have a bit of a transition time to share. But I will tell you, I've been traveling a lot with this book, mm-hmm. um, giving talks, uh, meeting with people. Uh, I, I do travel um, uh, for reporting for the Washington Post again. And I would never have been able to do it had we not changed our, our relationship. And he sponsors me to do that. And I think that's the important thing is that there's, call it co-sponsorship, you know, that each yeah. of you get a turn so that nobody feels like they're self-sacrificing and nobody has to grin and bear it because you know what you grin and bear it right to the divorce court you know that's right I feel that so much um thank you so much for sharing that and I'm just going to move to a question that I'm so glad I get to ask you or at least I just a statement I wanted to say um we may have already said this, but we heard Bridget for the first time on um, NPR on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And there was one moment in the interview that I thought was so interesting because you were telling a story about, again, the, the busy and getting your daughter to her ballet lesson. <laughs> and yes, I, I could just so relate, Bridget. And you were saying, you know, and you were telling your daughter um, about, you know, that she was she didn't really care and she didn't really I don't know if she didn't want to go or if she was just annoyed because everybody was in such a rush around her but she was in the back seat and you actually said something to her that I've said to my kids in different ways like you don't understand how important my job is and how the important things I need to do and you know just trying to tell our young children like how busy we are as if they can even relate or care Um, but the point in that interview that I loved is when Terry said to you well if you didn't take her, though, how would she have gotten there? And your point to Terry was, well, we could have missed that day. Mm-hmm. And I think that – and I just went hallelujah because those are the things in our busy, overwhelmed mind that we forget that if things are crazy, if the babysitter is sick, if I have to work, that day is going to be different and maybe mm-hmm. ballet won't happen or we right. can't make that event. And I feel like that's something that – parents struggle with is they are so on autopilot. It's not even on their radar. Like there's no way my kid could ever miss a ballet because then I wouldn't be a good mom or a dad. Right. And and to create the space to allow for things to get missed. And and just the fact that Terry would even say that to you, but how would you have done it then? And you're like, I wouldn't have done it. So could you speak a little more to that? Because I thought that was really important. Well, and it took me a long time to get to that point where I could even think that, you know, I was very much wrapped into that. Oh my God, I can't, my kids can't miss this. I don't want them. I don't want to, you know, forget snack. I don't, you know, I don't want to be the parent who forgets snack at the soccer game or doesn't bring the the baked goods for the band concert. You know, I don't want to be that parent. And I was just so 
I think so guilty about working and so worried that my working and being away from them was making me a bad mom that I just overdid. And I, uh, it's like, I never cut myself any slack that, you know, uh, if I had a busy day or like you say, you know, in that instance where I was taking her to ballet, it's because my after school babysitter kind of flaked out on me at the last minute. And without even thinking, Todd, just like you said, totally on autopilot, I just, you know, closed my computer, grabbed my BlackBerry, this is a couple years ago, and uh, raced out of, of my office to go get her to do it myself. And it was really a friend of mine who was a little bit more, um, uh, you know, less, she was never a guilty parent, so she was always good to have as a friend. She's the one that said to me, it's like, well, uh, you know, why did you think it had to be you? You know, yeah. if your babysitter couldn't do it, why did you have to do it? I'm like, huh, I never even stopped to ask myself that. And so I think that so many parents, we are, you know, that was the other thing that was so striking to me when you read the sociological literature, that our standards for what it takes or what we think it takes to be a good mother, to be a good parent, have never been higher. And, you know, and we have so many parents who work. Most of our kids are growing up in dual income or single parent families. So, I mean, it's kind of a crazy making recipe that we've never expected parents to do more. And we've never expected moms in particular to do more and to do it on their own, even when so many are working. So, I'm, you know, we are all so soaked in guilt and um and it's really making all of us crazy. I think for one, we have to recognize that we're kind of over-programming our kids. And part of it is out of necessity because we are working and there isn't really a whole lot of great options for childcare or aftercare or fun things to do. You know, so we schedule them so that, uh, you know, they're not roaming in the streets because if they're roaming in the streets, then who knows, our neighbors will call child protective services and then, you know, they'll take the kids away. You know, so our neighborhoods are different. We don't know our neighbors. We're too busy. We overschedule our kids because we don't have other stuff to do with them. And also because we're really afraid uh, of the future. So much is uncertain. Kind of the keys to success are changing. And so you want to give your kid every single option. And then for me, I was just terrified that if they missed something, then they would they would have a terrible childhood and it would be my fault. You know? yeah. So I wanted to give them everything. And in the process, made them crazy and made me crazy. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it was all the time. I mean, my kids have hopefully had a great childhood and it was not always crazy. There have been moments of joy and love, obviously. But I think what, what, what really helped me a lot is there was a recent study that I just wrote about for the Washington Post that one of the researchers that I spent time with um, in researching the book, Melissa Milkey, she's now at the University of Toronto, And she was looking at how time with kids has really been on the rise since the 1980s or 70s, really, but really an upswing since the 1980s for both men and women. And she wanted to ask that question that we all have. We assume that more time would lead to better outcomes for our kids because we assume that more is better. And we're also guilty that we're not spending enough time with our kids. And what was so striking is that she found it was not the quantity of time that mattered at all. It was the quality of time that matters, and when uh, you're stressed out and rushing around, that stress is actually uh, what kind of, you know, makes that, uh, kind of impinges on that quality time, and that is, you know, that actually leads to negative child outcomes. And so I think that's really instructive for all of us to know, to take a breath, to lose the guilt, to, you know, to realize you're good enough. Uh, focus on the quality time, you know, and let let the ballet class go every now and again. Wonderful. Well, one of the uh, themes that we talk about is, you know, presence. Like, are you present for your children? Are you checking your phone? Are you trying to do 85 different things? And that's just something that 
We struggle. I mean, I'm aware of it and I still do it. So it's one of those things that's just like constant reminders and reminders. So, but we can talk probably for another few hours, but we're going to be respectful of your time, Bridget. So (laughs) um, the name of the book is called Overwhelmed, How to Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Uh, The author is Bridget Schulte. Um, Bridget, um, would you like to share with our listeners how they can find out more about you? Sure. Um, well, I've got a website, BridgetSchulte.com, um, and there's lots of really great resources there. There's actually a video of Tom and I talking about the Thanksgiving story uh, <laughs> Good. That, a friend, that a friend shot on an iPhone. Um, uh, I do have an occasional newsletter uh, that I send out on, on sort of toward time serenity, kind of uh, cool research and stuff that I'm writing about. Uh, at the Washington Post, uh, people can find me there. I've got a, an author page. If they just search me in the Washington Post, I write uh, we do a really cool time hacker series every week. It's a, kind of like a mini overwhelmed and a time coach works with somebody and we do a time makeover, how to make time for something that's important. Uh, I do a good life conversation every day, sort of just like this, so sort of how do you live a good life and then um, write lots of stories about how we work, love and play. I'm also on Twitter at Bridget Schulte and on Facebook um, and I would love to keep the conversation going. Uh, well, we love providing uh, resources to our listeners, and this is one of the best resources we've yeah, ever had. I'd as say far this as we're is concerned. like our favorite book of the year. So, um, Bridget, <laughs> thank can't, you so much. Can't say thank you enough. We'll, we'll hopefully stay connected at some point, but I'm just really, really grateful to you for giving us your time and sharing your story with our listeners. So, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 